Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dion. Today, I'm joined by Jill Scott. Jill, thank you so much for coming on today. Hi, thanks for having me. Before we get started talking about UMaine development, I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure. My name is Jill Scott, iOS developer, living in Charlottesville, Virginia at the moment. Anything else? Yeah. Who do you work for right now, I guess? Yeah, I work at a company called Willow Tree, um, a consultancy. They're based out of Charlottesville. So I really loved your talk at 360 iDev, and we've talked before about things which we'll mention later, like big words like cyclomatic complexity. Uh, we've actually talked about that before in the episode we had, when we had Ann on, and there was a lot there that we've talked about on this show before about like keeping your code simple and things like that. What exactly is humane development? And from your personal experience, why is it so important? Sure. So humane development, it's a term that I first came across when I was reading a book called Code That Fits in Your Head by Mark Seaman. He talks about humane code. And the idea is that code is, I guess, at its root, um, a conversation. The idea of writing code, you know, obviously it's to accomplish the specific feature or task that we're trying to do at that moment. But um, it's also to write something that other people are going to be interacting with. So when we write code, we're writing for future developers and for our future selves, not just for a machine. So humane development is the idea of keeping that in mind while we're writing our code. So making sure that it's readable, um, making sure that it's communicating what we expect to the people that are reading it in the future. And I think I personally was uh, really interested in this topic because I tend to be really distractible. I tend to go down the wrong paths. I tend to, you know, fixate on logic that is completely unrelated to my future when I'm going back through old code. And so the idea of humane development, of developing, keeping those kinds of limitations and those kinds of distractions in mind for future devs feels really important to me. So let's say you're you're told to like update some old code What's one of the first things you've noticed that developers do that are like bad habits when you've been given a, a, a job to do maintaining somebody's old code? So I think when we're first developing a piece of code, a lot of us, um, definitely myself included, we tend to fixate on finding the I don't know, the cleverest solution to our problem or the solution that that gets it working. And that's important. It's, of course, important to accomplish your acceptance criteria. But it's also important, like I said, to, to communicate with what you're writing. So a clever solution might not be the one that's most communicative. It's it's tempting to stick with you know something that, honestly, something that looks complex and feels smart. That's why, that's why we're developers, right? We like to solve problems and we like to come up with clever solutions. But that doesn't mean that it is going to be the solution that is sustainable long-term. There's always ways of like clarifying code. So I think one of the main mistakes that we make is sticking with kind of our first, our first pass at code and not looking at it again through the lens of someone that's going to be reading it in the future. I mean, I just think like we often don't realize that at the, I mean, at the end of the day, this is all money, right? And I think we try too hard to write clever code that's fast or shows off some cool feature. And, and like when a company's paying for stuff, paying for employees, 
and playing for that time is going to be the biggest cost expense. And like, if your code is way too clever, that manager, that CEO is just going to look at that and be like, oh my gosh, this is a pain in the butt to maintain. We're spending tons of money. Like that creating code that's maintainable, easily maintainable, easily understandable is going to be a lot more profitable to the company. And that means they're, you know, they're going to do well and you're going to do well than worrying about optimizing it for hardware that essentially is going to be replaced in like two to three years. Right. So I think that's like the big picture business reason, besides the fact that nobody wants to work for a company where the, the code is garbage and it's difficult to maintain and then you're given tight deadlines, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I think that's kind of, that's the selling point besides the morale issue of like having to work on a really horrible code base that's way too clever or just way too sloppy. And like, like you said, there's kind of a sweet spot in the middle. Well, it's not just a sweet spot. It's like breaking. I mean, to me, it's like breaking things down into smaller pieces and properly documenting, I think are two, two of the big things that people should be doing when it comes to their code base. What are some other code spills or red flags you've seen in code? Especially, I guess, maybe in the iOS dev space, especially. Yeah. So I think a big one that you kind of alluded to is making sure that things are broken down appropriately. You know, having a having a function that is 100 lines long is probably not going to be sustainable. So definitely, yeah, a, a code smell would be having a super long function. It's not always a bad thing necessarily to have a long one, but the chances are that the longer it becomes, the less readable it is. And, you know, our brains can only hold so much information at one time. And so in in looking at a function, for example, or just any, any chunk of code, the more meat there is to it, the more that we have to keep in our brains. And that makes decoding it really difficult. Breaking it up into functions lets us, you know, name the function something descriptive. And it means that we probably don't have to go into that function and parse what it's doing because it tells us what it's doing right there in the name. And so when it's called, that's breaking it up into a chunk that's really easily digestible. Yeah. And I think there's there's a bad habit from the old days. As we get more into talking about actual solutions, there's a bad habit from the old days of like doing things, making things like var x or let x and like not saying the name of the thing or having the function long because you're running on a whatever old univac or whatever it's like it's like yeah you can't do that everything has to be really like tight but we don't we don't have that nowadays and also we have like autocomplete we have the internet to look up api documentation things like that and i think you touched upon uh, i think an important piece that maybe we can get into a little bit more is how there's only so much room in our brain to hold this stuff in and like how how our brain and how our memory works, how that ties into how difficult it can be to maintain code. You want to you want to break that down a little bit and how memory works? Yeah, for sure. So a lot of people are already familiar with two of the types of memory, which is short-term memory and long-term memory. And those are, of course, super important in our day-to-day jobs uh, with short-term memory being kind of the list of things that we can hold on to in our head, just the, the pure information that we maybe like read and acceptance criteria or something like that. Long-term memory being, you know, the stuff that we've learned about programming over the years. So we use that to inform how we work with short-term memory. And then working memory is a third type of memory that is, I would argue, the most important 
skill or the most important thing that we use when we're doing our jobs. Working memory is what allows us to apply those long-term memory skills to what we're holding in our short-term memory. So working memory, like short-term memory, is also limited. And it's what allows us to uh, employ the logic that's so important to what we do. So when we're going through and reading past code, we're using working memory in order to kind of manipulate the logic of that old code. So we, we hold on to what it's doing and we apply it to what you know we're trying to accomplish in the code that we're writing at the moment. So working memory has a lot of characteristics that make it distinct from short or long-term memory, including, like I said, the fact that it's really, that it's limited. Uh, you can only hold and do so much in your brain at one time, but also that it's really dependent upon attention. So you have to have a sustained attention upon the tasks that you're doing. And if anything distracts you from what you're doing at the time, you start to lose some of the information that you're holding in your head. So the way that that translates into working with with code is when you start to, you know, have to delve into old code and understand it in order to work on whatever you're working on at the time. If we have to pause and sort of parse that old code and decode it, we're going to lose some of the context that we have on the new feature that we're working on. We're going to lose our train of thought. We can no longer sustain attention on the things that we were trying to sustain attention on before. And, you know, like it just kind of breaks our momentum in what we're doing. So, yeah, working memory uh, is super key and supporting it and working with its limitations and acknowledging them is one of the main is kind of the main importance of humane development is is working for that. Yeah, I agree. And I think like that's where the, you said, and we both said, you know, breaking functions down. I would also say breaking types down, breaking files shouldn't be too long, like break every type and extension into a separate file. Like there's no, I think we just have a lot of these, A, we're, we're in software development. So we're lazy to our benefit in the sense that we want to automate everything, Right. But then that laziness can sometimes mean we just put everything in one file and one function. Uh, and we should, like, that's, no, don't do that. Put it in separate files. It doesn't cost a lot. Like, we have IDEs that do autocomplete, and we can look up stuff. We've done an episode on all the little things you should know about Xcode to help you with that. And, you know, whatever IDE you're using, heck, we have GitHub Auto Copilot now. So we can even have the machine write the code for us. So like, yeah, breaking things into small chunks. And then also like that gets to benefits with unit tests and things like that. What are some other strategies you've found to help you that other developers have done or you've done to help make that code more maintainable? We've talked about breaking into small chunks. What else can you think of? Yeah. So that descriptive naming that we already mentioned also. So there's a, there's a few points about descriptive naming. And so when I say naming, I'm talking about like function names, class names, things like that. Just anything that we're defining as uh, a descriptor. Um, so making names that are descriptive enough so that describe exactly. Don't use X. Don't use I yeah. in your for loop. Come on, people. Yep. Yep. Exactly. When you're, yeah, you, you don't want to have to figure out what it's referring to. Um, again, that takes up, you know, an important piece of working memory. 
as soon as you have to pause and figure that out. So yeah, descriptive naming, making sure that it gives us enough information. Also naming that doesn't like lead us astray. So sometimes, you know, when we're doing a first pass at code, um, we might think that a variable is going to give us a piece of information that ultimately it doesn't end up really representing very well. So continually updating our names so that they give us the information that we're expecting and intending. Do you have an example of where you've run into that? I'm curious. Yeah. So let me let me think of something specific. Yeah. Well, I can just give I can give you the example I gave in uh in the talk that you that you attended um was I was talking about validating this this piece of code and like, you know, displaying some red text when uh, some criteria wasn't met. And oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that was good. The, the variable was called, you know, like a uh, skill error or something like that. And so initially when I was going over that code as a first pass, I was thinking that, you know, somewhere along the line, it was going to throw an error. And since error is, you know, a, a swift type, we would expect to find an error in that code somewhere. As it turned out, I didn't use error at all. Um, it was just, you know, a validation that checked to make sure some conditions were met. Um, so the type error was never used. And that means that, you know, calling it whatever kind of error, skill error, yeah, was giving a wrong impression and leading us astray. Right. So if I went back through that code, saw that, I would be looking for an error type and I would not find it anywhere. So yeah, it's a it's a pitfall. It again distracts us from whatever is at hand that we're trying to accomplish. In terms of like other tools at our disposal for you know making code more readable, there's one that that. I find a little controversial for some developers, uh, which is just comments. I know that really? a lot of times, yeah, I, I know a lot of devs that have you know read clean code, which is fantastic, and read a lot of books and think that what those books are saying is don't write comments. And so a mistake <laughs> that people make is sometimes taking that a little bit too far. Comments can be distracting. Uh, they can create noise if they're unnecessary, but they can also be incredibly helpful, especially from the lens of, of humane development. So the person that's writing that code originally has a lot of context that the future person's not going to have, the future you know developer that's reading that code later. So getting that sort of project context that the code can't self-document can be clarified with a well-placed comment. And I find those incredibly helpful for, you know, working memory, not having to go down this extraneous, like, track of thought. Hey, everyone. I'm Dave Verwa, and you might know that I run the Swift Package Index along with Sven Schmidt. Thanks so much to Leo for inviting us to talk a little bit about the Package Index today. SwiftPackageIndex.com is the place to find Swift packages. We have over 5,000 packages indexed, so no matter what you're looking for, you'll find something that can help. But what we do is about more than just finding a library. We want to help you make better decisions about your dependencies. So for every package, you can see how well-maintained it is, what platforms and Swift versions it's compatible with, based on real-world build data, how many other dependencies it will bring in, and much more. We also host doxy-based documentation for package authors. 
But I'd also like to talk to you about what it takes to keep a site like this going. Running the package index requires constant ongoing effort maintaining the site and supporting package authors. Our work is primarily funded by the Swift community. And since you're listening to a Swift podcast, you're part of that community. So if our site has helped you find a package, or if you want to support a community-run open source project, please go to swiftpackageindex.com, look for the pink heart, and join over a 100 other people who support our work through GitHub sponsors. Thanks so much, Leo, and we'll let you get back on with the show now. Yeah, I mean, if you're doing like any public SDK for cert, you should be having co- comments and, you know, documenting your code and things like that. Also think like at the very least, especially something that's some like it's pretty complex, like use some doc, like the doxy, not you don't have to build out a whole doxy documentation, but at least have like a header comment on mm. your functions and types. Like yeah, that sure. doesn't like tell, like tell the story of what your function is doing and what it's supposed to be doing. I want to say one more thing. I don't know if you've heard of this framework that's pretty popular right now. It's called uh, Swift UI. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> you can get some pretty, like, I guess they're computed properties or they're functions. Bodies, I guess, are they're mostly computed properties. You get some pretty massive Swift UI views. Oh, absolutely. That's a great example of something that should be broken down into separate Swift UI views. Anytime you're doing, like, a lot of, like, combined ninjutsu and you're doing a bunch of stuff with publishers you know maybe that needs to be in a separate observable object that does that for you i think that's a great example of where i've seen a lot of people fall into that trap oh yeah when you're going through some of those like nested views if you haven't broken them up yeah it can be so easy to to lose track of where you're at in that like view hierarchy um whereas if you're extracting those into their own into their own views you can name it something descriptive and then you know exactly where you're at and exactly what that chunk of code is representing. I think the other thing I was going to point out is there might be times where your code is messy and that's that's okay. But at some point, like that's where a good pull request, you need to review your own pull requests and you need to like, or at least have somebody tell you, like if you're reviewing somebody else's pull request, say you need to put comments and say this needs to be broken down. I think that's, that's another helpful guidance as far as like helping others make their code more accessible and make your own code more accessible. Yeah. I think the whole code review process is an essential step in humane development because it guarantees that somebody who doesn't have the context that you have when developing that feature is looking at that code. So, you know, they kind of represent the the future developer in that context because they're, they're seeing exactly what, points are unclear at first glance. So yeah, totally right, agree. Exactly. And like review your own code maybe right away before you merge it something in. Or one thing we've we've talked about before on the show is like maybe look at your code a week or two weeks later where your mind has lost a lot of that short-term memory and you know realize that you know maybe you need to work on your code comments and your refactoring. Because that gives you that, like, you don't have the context anymore. And now you can be like, oh, yeah, I should have described that a little bit because now I have to look back and try to remember what I did here. That's what I've found as well. That's helpful. Yeah, completely. And the more, the more you do that too, you kind of start to be able to identify without having to wait, you know, those three weeks. You start to, 
recognize those sooner, those points where code can be further refactored. It's really, it's a, it's a practice in empathy. I find that really interesting, taking yourself out of, out of the shoes of current dev and putting yourself in the shoes of future dev. So what are some other things that you would describe as like accessible code and what that means to you? Yeah. Uh, so accessible code, I think we're all familiar with the idea of accessible code in the traditional definition where we're thinking about the end user and the limitations that the user might have and how to how to set them up for success, whatever their you know, user experiences and however it might differ from them or however it might differ from ours. So things like uh, making sure we're using voiceover and supporting, you know, dynamic dynamic text, dynamic font sizes and stuff. Those are all incredibly essential. But I think that there is another side of accessible code, and that is making sure your code is accessible to other developers. So making sure that your code base is accessible as well. And, you know, when when we're talking about memory, working memory especially, it's really important to remember that not only is working memory like limited in all humans, uh, like we all have you know, the extent to which we can we can manipulate information and remember it. There's a lot of people that struggle with it more than others. So like anything at any time can affect working memory. It's really susceptible to, I don't know, to like uh, detriments, things that negatively affect it. So for example, um, sleep and nutrition, even mood, you could just be grumpy. And it means that your working memory isn't going to be firing like it usually does. But then there's also there's also any number of conditions and and limitations that someone can experience that cause working memory to be lessened and make working with code that much harder. So things like you know ADHD and uh, autism spectrum disorder, any number of like physical impairments or learning conditions and disabilities. Personally, I you know this is another reason that humane development is such an important concept to me is I have ADHD and I have depression as well. And those two things together can create this kind of absolute mess of working memory. And I've found that focusing on programming for future me makes sure my code is that much cleaner. I know that there's people that, you know, are experiencing working memory limitations at any given time and they need help. And that help comes in the form of writing good code. So I think accessible code to me is, you know, keeping in mind everyone's limitations, the fact that humans are imperfect, that brains are imperfect. And yeah, writing accessible code is is making it as consumable as possible for all of us. What, when you've worked on like a team, because we all work on, nobody's a like, solo developer unless they're indie, right? But like, when you've worked at an actual company, what have you found that they've done? What are some things, mistakes that they've made and what are some things that they've done well to help you uh, and your team actually write accessible code? Yeah. Um, so I think the primary mistake that teams make um, is just not accounting for how important working memory is to what we do um, on a day-to-day basis, not, you know, not necessarily discounting it, but just not being aware, uh, working memory and, um, and cognitive load. I don't think we talked about that yet, but um, if I can digress for a second. (laughs) So 
there is kind of this intrinsic cognitive load to anything we do. And that just means uh, the resources that are going to be taken up by working memory to do a task. And intrinsic cognitive load is, you know, just kind of the, the cognitive price of doing whatever the task is. So, you know, by nature of our jobs, we have to use a certain amount of working memory because, you know, there's logic to do. There's things to figure out. There's also extrinsic cognitive load, which is cognitive load that's unnecessary. It's the things that that take up our working memory when we're distracted or when we have to go like parse through some some code that is a little more complex than probably needs be. So cognitive overload is what happens when basically when our when our brain gets full or that feeling of our brain being full. It's when working memory, you know, is just uh, is at capacity and cognitive load is too much for us to be able to effectively work with the things that we're trying to keep in our head. So in that sense, um, I think a mistake that we make both as, as devs and as, you know, team leads or as, as leadership on a team, a big mistake is not realizing the impact of cognitive overload. And I think that takes the form of a couple of things that I can think of specifically. One of those being just another another example of, of empathy for your team is is knowing that cognitive overload is is going to strike um, is going to strike unexpected unexpectedly, and knowing that that it varies from day to day. So when we're estimating tickets, for example, knowing that a three you know a, a three point ticket looks different today than it does tomorrow, and it doesn't mean that we have to panic and like push our our estimates and our deadlines back um, that are a few months out. It just means that today my three point ticket looks like a one and tomorrow it looks like a like a 16 or an eight. Cognitive overload differs. That's a really good point. Like, cause when I think about the point thing, like usually the biggest problem or the biggest variable is that we're not great at estimating more on like our technical skills and especially when something is some API we've never used. But to think about it in terms of cognitive load, like that's, yeah, that's the other thing is like very much a lot of this is a lot of these practices come from older industries where things are kind of predictable. And that's, these are more like our our job is cognitive. It's not just, you know, turning a gear or, hitting a hammer or hitting with a hammer or something like that. So like our brains are very, like you said, they're very variable, very variable, whatever. And so like the time it takes to do stuff can vary considerably if like something is happening in our personal life or like, you know, we're sick. Those are going to affect points. Well, or what the point, the time length it takes to work on something besides all the like, technical issues we all run into when we're implementing an API or there's like some issue with our computer or whatever else. So I, I love that point. That's really good. Yeah. And it, it's, you mentioned like, yeah, something could be happening in our personal life. And that like, like we, I talked about earlier, empathy is huge. Uh, just knowing that devs are people and it doesn't even have to be something major in someone's life either. Like I was, I was talking about with the conditions that affect working memory. It could just be that like, my ADHD is is raging today. Like it's it has the wheel and it's acting up. Or it could just be that I'm in the office today and 
somebody is like humming a tune that <laughs> yeah, kind of recognize yes. I can't place it, but it consumes my thought and I <laughs> yeah, can't help yes. it. But it's yeah, any anything or bad sleep or bad mood. What, what was the tune? <laughs> Still can't place it. Oh, okay. But you spent you spent hours googling it and trying to find out what it is. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I I could have just asked the person. Well, there's, did you try Kazam? I didn't. I should have. I could have asked the person, but at that point, it was like a pride thing. I had to, I had to get it myself. Well, and also, you you don't want to admit to yourself that you're you've got this yep. earworm that you're. <laughs> so you're like, no, I'm not going to ask the person. Focus. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, yeah. So the other thing I was going to ask and, and talk about was just like businesses and managers are especially driven by features in the app. So that can be if you if you drive too like obviously you gotta drive so much putting new features because you gotta make money in order to run the business, but um like there needs to be a little bit of slack um in the sense of having time to do like nobody's perfect, but to like make the code more maintainable. Let's hey, let's take a week or two like improving fixing these issues where we have these 200 line functions or 300 line Swift UI views and like take the time to do that, I think is really important. And also, I mean, the, be- uh, the ideal is obviously doing it as you do the features, but that's not always the case where imperfect, you know, so maybe like a give a little bit of slack during each feature and also give some slack every so often to like, to like do these practices and fix some code that's not highly maintained. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, having that time to just like a general, you know, go back and look for overly complex code um, is is super helpful for a maintainable code base. And beyond that, yeah, just just having a little room in your estimation for any given like ticket or feature to go back and address the points where you found there to be extra complexity. So, you know, if I'm working over on feature A and it requires that I look at feature B to get get some contextual logic or contextual information, if I notice parts in B that are problematic for me and I find myself, you know, having to dig into the documentation or having to decode some logic that's in there, making a note of that and going back and correcting it um, being, you know, future dev that we talked about earlier, like that, that's, you know, me now. And it's easier for me to identify those, those places where we're kind of tipped into cognitive overload because of having to do some extraneous work. So leaving some time in our feature work to make those corrections whenever they come up is, is essential. Uh, it, is what makes our it's what allows us to have a continually evolving and improving code base that is going to be sustainable long term. So one of the we, we talked a bit about keeping your functions small. Um, and part of that is this idea of keeping your logic simple. And that's where we get into that term cyclomatic complexity. Let first of all, I'll let you explain what cyclomatic complexity means. Sure. So cyclomatic complexity for a long time, longer than I care to admit, was a little obscured for me because it's a big word. <laughs> and yeah, it is. Uh, when Swift Lint would throw that error, I'd be like, oh, that 
means something that I should probably look at one day and then like ignore it. As it turns out, it's actually a pretty approachable concept. Cyclomatic complexity just measures the paths through a given chunk of code, through a given function. To calculate it, it's it's actually a number. You just give a one for you know the normal path through code, and then you basically just add one for every uh, decision that your code has to make. So if there's an if, add one for cyclomatic complexity. And so the higher that number gets, like the more the more paths there are decisions that have to be made, then, you know, the more complex you can guess that your code is. It's a really good metric for identifying where there may be points to come back to and simplify it. You know, it's not foolproof. There are some cases where you might have a high cyclomatic complexity and it's still perfectly readable. An example is like enums. I don't think enums are always the best solution, but sometimes they are and sometimes they're really readable and they'll have a high cyclomatic complexity because each of those cases is going to represent, you know, more complexity. And if especially, sorry, especially if you have a nested if else kind of statements in there. Right. If you have a flat if else, it shouldn't be too much of an issue. It's more like when you start having if yep. and then another if inside and then another if, and it's a weird pyramid of logic. That's probably a good code smell that your cyclomatic complexity is is over overwrought, and having it more flat, I guess, would would, would help. I think like I think enums probably aren't too much of an issue if you're doing a switch ca- mm-hmm. switch case statement. I think you're okay, but like to me, it's always been when I've had these like jagged pyramids of if if and if else's that usually is a good indication you should break it down into like smaller functions of logic. Sure, sure. And the reason that I bring up enums as an example is just that a lot of times we use, or a lot of times I've seen use the the enum structure to kind of in each of those cases to have further if else yeah yeah especially when you get like associated values and enums which is a weird swift quirk yeah i could totally see that for sure yep so it can get out of control and uh more complex pretty easily so you know occasionally that adds a cyclomatic complexity that either either could or could not uh be problematic depending on, you know, how things are structured. I don't know if that made any sense. Uh, I kind of got off on a tangent, sorry. Well, <laughs> but no, but I think like it, like a lot of, I think Swiftlet is the one that does cyclomatic complexity. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a really good tool to just like get started, to understand it and to like actually like implement it, like rather than trying to count the points because I can't do it. Yeah, use it, implement something like Swiftlet, run it on your code base, see what you get. And that'll tell you right away, oh yeah, these are way too many if statements. And we'll we'll post some links in the show notes on, on, on that. But that it, it, there's a lot of problems when you have that. It's A, it's difficult to maintain. B, it's like hard to test. There's just, there's a lot of issues when you have cyclomatic complex code. So, yeah. Yeah, and in terms of working memory, it 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 shows us where we might hit cognitive overload because if we have all of those different paths, we might be trying to store all of those paths in our working memory at the same time. And pretty quickly, we'll find that we just can't, you know, our our brain can't hold that much information even if it is in like logical chunks. And so seeing seeing a cyclomatic complexity of, you know, I would say greater than like five is 
is a good indication that it might be a place where we want to start looking at extracting things into functions, breaking it down. Yeah, exactly. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we close out? Just, I think the the main idea I want to get across is just humane development being a, a way to remember or a good a good tool for remembering the limitations of people and to, you know, use it to inform the decisions that we're making uh, when we program. Be kind to yourself if you don't, you know, grasp what particular code is doing right away and be kind to future devs um, by, you know, setting them up for success. I think that all falls into the category of humane development for me and, you know, is arguably the the most important part of it is, is just empathy for fellow devs. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. If you want good morale and you want to keep your devs, definitely, definitely follow some of the guidance here today. Thank you so much, Jill, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for the conversation. Where can people find you online? They can find me on LinkedIn. Just Jill Scott, I believe I will uh, send you a link. Yep. And then we'll post the link. Uh, We'll have your Twitter on there as well and a link to your talk. Thank you again. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks so much. People can find me on Twitter at LeoGD on my company is Break Digit. If you're watching this on YouTube, take some time to like and subscribe. And if you're listening to this on whatever podcast player, please post a review. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. And I look forward to talking to you again. Bye, everyone.